John 14. Uh, we are picking up where we left off last week in the middle of uh, not just a section but a sermon on uh, John 14. And, and so, as talking about this last week, but just thinking of most of us, I would say, we tend to prefer order over chaos. I think that's safe to assume. I, I, I know some kind of like things to be exciting and some like, tend to prefer things to just constantly stay the same. So I know there's some variety in that and just personality and temperament. But I like routine. I like comfort. I like predictability. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, I like things to go as planned. I like to know what's coming. And But that's not how life is all the time, is it? Um, sometimes there are very rude and brutal and, 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 uh, and, and sudden interruptions to the status quo of our lives. That, that happens, not too infrequently. I, I use this as just a brief illustration. Last night I was developed a little more. About, I'm not a baseball player. And if you've ever seen me on the church softball team of many years ago, you understand that statement is truth. Um, but it, it, let's just take take me and put me in the batting cages. Let's say Brooke and I are on a hot date at Fun Junction right up here around the corner. I don't even know if they still have batting cages. They used to. Uh, but we're there, and uh, and I'm trying to impress Brooke with my batting skills. And so I get that disgusting, lice-ridden helmet that everybody else wears on my head and that sticky-handled, gross bat that everybody else uses. And I pop my quarters in the machine and I, of course, I'm going to choose the slow-pitch softball uh, cage, but I, I step in there to put on a batting exhibition for Brooke. And, and so the first pitch comes and it's just how that slow-pitch machine just kind of lobbed Barely makes it, but it makes it across that plate, and I crush a foul tip, and okay, make contact, and the second pitch comes, and I just really unload on this one and and dribble the ball, you know, almost to the machine, and so the third pitch comes, and again, I'm expecting this kind of grapefruit-sized lob over the plate, but instead what comes out of that machine is a 95-mile-per-hour inside fastball, and... And it pushes me back. You know, that silly illustration, but life can seem that way at times, can it? Uh, things are going fine. We're, we're routinely getting the ball in play and, and everything's just kind of going as, as expected and we know what to expect and everything, boom, changes. Um, I remember we sang, uh, I Will Rise. That was a song that was, uh, my, that was the one song my mom said she really wanted sung at her funeral, and it was bringing back that memory. I, when, the, when my dad called me in August of 2009, I was at Publix getting a few things, a few groceries, and my dad called me and told me my mom had pancreatic cancer. And it was they had the little lawn furniture set up in the in the, in the front of the store, and I just sat down there and wept. It's this, it's this unexpected change. Life was going one way, everything was was moving ahead, and then boom, cancer. And or it's it may be something else. It may be a house fire. It it may be um, uh, we're gonna have to let you go. Or it may be I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. I I don't know what it is. Last year, last week we called it clear air turbulence. But just trying to give another picture of of what this looks like, what it feels like. Well, the disciples of Jesus, his closest followers, 
were just delivered this inside fastball that they did not expect to, to come. They were, they were expecting that slow pitch lobbed over the plate and they were prepared to hit it out of the park. I mean, triumphal entry. Everything's looking great. Everything's looking up and, and the people are praising him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're deciding where they're going to sit in the kingdom and where they're going to rule and reign with Jesus and who's going to, who's going to have the preferred seat of honor. And then Jesus just boom. Gets, surprises them. And he tells them that he's going to die. And he's going to depart from them very soon. And he says that one of them will betray him. And Peter will deny him three times. As in Shakespeare, as Shakespeare says in Hamlet, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. So the disciples, they're troubled. They're in turmoil. Their heads are just spinning. Their whole world has just been turned upside down so to speak, by Jesus. And, and so Jesus knows this. He cares for them. He's not just trying to poke them and agitate them and, and just see how much they can stand. He, he, he cares for them. And He sees that they're troubled. And so He speaks these words of comfort to His disciples in their, in their turmoil. And He says to them, verse 1, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Keep on trusting in God. Keep on trusting in me. And so this is his appeal to them. And so, so we'll continue to look at these tender words of our Lord as he, as he again comforts his disciples when they've just been thrown this curveball that they didn't expect. And they're, these words are tremendous comfort to us also when things don't go as we've planned. And so the answer to troubled hearts, we said again last week, is Christ. It's Jesus. It's not a method, it's not a conference, it's not a book, it's not a program, it's not a pastor, it's Christ. And so last week we just said a few statements, we getting started. First, troubled hearts are comforted by the person of Christ, who He is. So He says, believe in God, verse 1, believe also in Me. And down in verse 7 to 11, He, he talks about whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. And I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me, and the Father who dwells in me does His work. So Jesus' very nature, who He is, His personhood, is comfort to our hearts. He's one with the Father. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, as we'll see next week, they team up for our comfort in times of trouble. Secondly, we said that troubled hearts are comforted by the preparation of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Or, or excuse me, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? We said last week, preparation shows love. And, and so Jesus here, by His death, resurrection, and ascension, is preparing the way for us to be with God in heaven. And so we see we're, there's comfort in that preparatory work of Christ. And third, this is where we left off, troubled hearts are comforted by the presence of Christ. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Pros is a little Greek preposition. It's, it's in the face of or before, face to face with Jesus. I will take you before myself that where I am, there you may be also. The idea of, of simply bringing us to heaven isn't enough for Jesus. He wants us with him face to face in his embrace. He says, I will come again. Being with Jesus Himself is the best part of Christ's return and of going to heaven. That's it. It's being with Him. 
And, and, and Jesus says, again, I will come again. I'm coming back. Christ's literal bodily return, we know, will mean terror for those who reject Him. And that's very clear in many places in Scripture, but Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, Jesus will come and He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And so it's terror for those who reject Christ, but it's for, but, the, but His return is tremendous comfort for those who believe in Him because it will mean that we will be forever with the Lord. And you see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, Paul writes to encourage uh, these, these believers in this church of, of the, the thoughts of Christ's return, is coming, that He's coming again. And he concludes all of that discussion about Christ's return by saying this. He said, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Christ, He's coming back. And this is what Jesus says to His disciples here. I will come again and take you to Myself. That's comfort to His disciples. The promise of face-to-face presence with Christ is great comfort to the troubled hearts of Jesus' followers. We, we sang it as well just a moment ago. And I have a voice I can already tell is getting kind of scratchy. So I'm going to need your help. We didn't sing the fourth verse. And I want us to sing that now, because it fits. I'm kind of glad we didn't, honestly. Because it fits so well right here. And so let's sing, O Lord, haste the day. O Lord, haste the day When the faith shall be sighed Tremendous comfort. In Christ's presence, that He's coming again, He will take us to Himself. Faith will be sight. We'll be with the Lord. And that brings us to the fourth, fourth way in which Christ is a great comfort to us in our trouble. And it's this, is that troubled hearts are comforted by the proclamation of Christ. So let's look in verse 4. Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus only prepares the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. The only way to God. Again, I'm glad. We talked about this last week. I'm glad guys like... Like Philip and Thomas and Peter, they, they say these things, they ask these questions, they make comments like this, because it gives the opportunity for Christ to give such incredible answers to many of the questions that we would be asking. 
And that's what we have here. One of the most well-known Bible verses that so many of us probably memorized early on in, in our uh, Christian life. It, it comes, humanly speaking, because Thomas asked this kind of confused question here. And so Jesus again responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what it says several things. One, it says that Jesus is the personal way. The way to God is not a set of rules. It's not, it's not a certain culture. It's not a program, a principle, an idea, a, some, some achievement. It's a person. Jesus says, I, me, I am the way. He doesn't simply blaze a trail for us and say, hey guys, follow after me. Do the things that I did and follow along. Keep up. I'll, I'll cut the path through the forest, but, but just, just, just try to keep up. That's not. And he doesn't commend us for making our own way to God. No, he says, I am the way. Person. He himself. Second, Jesus is the sufficient way. There are, there are these three parallel terms that, that show the sufficiency of Christ as the way. And, and the first one is that word, way. And this is the main thrust of the verse. I think this is, has the emphasis of way, truth, life. The way is the, is the essential one here. And in, it's in light of Thomas's question. And what Jesus is simply saying is, Jesus is the connection. He is, he is the link between God and sinners. And this means that access to the Father is, is through Christ Himself. There is only one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. Jesus it's the way. He's also the truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He doesn't just know the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And he's the truth in the sense that He's the only dependable source of redemptive revelation. He, he communicates accurately and perfectly the Father. He reveals the Father and the, and the, the way to be, to, to be redeemed by Him. So in this sense, He's the truth and He's the life True, abundant life is found only in Christ, in Christ Himself. He is life. He has life within Himself, John 5.26. He is the source and giver of life for His people, John 3.16 and 6.33. He has the light of life, John 8.12. He has the words of life, John 6.68. He came that we may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. We've seen this throughout our study of John, this emphasis of life, we See Jesus so that we put our trust in Him, believe in Him, and have life in His name. And so Jesus says, I, I am the life. I am, I am the way. As Jesus says this, and he, in just a few hours, He's going to be hanging powerless on a cross. He says, I am the truth, and, and He's going to be arrested and, and, and beaten and tried based upon lies. He's going to say, I am the life. And again, in just hours, he's going to, his, his, his rotten corpse is going to be in a tomb. But he's sufficient way. He's way, truth, life. And then finally, he's the exclusive way. The, definite article, not a, not one of many. The way, the truth, the life. To make this very clear, he ends verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter underscored this fact before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is, is the only way to the Father. He's the only one who can bring people to the Father. That's, that's not 
popular to talk like that, but it is, it is biblical truth. People don't have a problem if you say that Jesus is a way to God, one of many ways, but, but, but you can't say that other beliefs are false. But Jesus, he doesn't claim that. He says, I'm the only, only way to the Father. But the question for us, in the context, this isn't, Jesus isn't talking about apologetics or evangelism. He's, he's talking about comfort. So the question is, what comfort is there for, for Christ's exclusivity? What, what comfort is that for, for troubled hearts? That Jesus is the only way. Let me tell you, let me just give you a few ways I think this connects for our comfort and for yours today. Because Jesus is the way, you have access to the gracious Father through Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can bring all of your troubles, all of your sorrows into the very presence of Almighty God. You cannot do that apart from Christ. But because Jesus is Open the way, and He is the way. Through Christ, we can come to our loving Father who, who has adopted us as His own, and we can, can lay our, our, our troubles before Him in His presence. That's incredible comfort to us. We don't have to go through some religious song and dance. We don't have to, 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 to perform these sacrifices and, 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 and just prove our obedience. We can come freely through Christ. To a father who says, I hear you, I'm, come through him. Another thing, because Jesus is the truth, our troubled hearts can be comforted. When, when everything around us is shifting and uncertain and it's, 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 it's upset and it's subjective and it's changing, that's how it feels in times of trouble. And we don't, there's nothing we can count upon. Everything's changing so fast and that just adds to the grief in times of sorrow and trouble. But listen, Jesus is the truth. You can stand, you can sit, you can lay prostrate on this fact of the truth of who Jesus is. When everything else is uncertain, you can be confident in Christ. He is the truth. He has revealed the Father perfectly. Because Jesus is the life, your troubled heart can be comforted knowing that all those who trust in Him can have the assurance of eternal life. That this, this life isn't it. We have waiting for us this promise of life with the Lord forever. Eternal, abundant life. The second death, the physical death, has lost its sting. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there's there's comfort in this proclamation of Jesus and what He says about Himself. Again, we're getting, this is one of those, uh, the sixth, and we'll have one more I Am statement of Jesus here in the Gospel of John. So what Jesus claims, what He proclaims about Himself is again, is in the context of comfort. So if you want comfort, you need to know Christ more. Know what He says about Himself and believe it more deeply. And so this goes back to verse 1. Believe in God. Keep trusting in Me also. This is the kind of stuff that we trust. Is that Christ is the way, the truth, the life. Fifth, how are troubled hearts comforted by Christ? They're comforted by the power of Christ. 
The power of Christ. Verse 12. We're skipping down. We covered verses 7 to 11 last week. So we're going to skip down to verse 12 now. Truly, truly, I say to you. Again, I just pause. If you've been with us, I'm not going to go through my speech again. But just note that. Jesus is saying, get this. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Did you get that? (laughs) You know what he's saying there? Those who believe in Jesus will do the works that Jesus did, but not only that, greater works than Christ did. Does that characterize your life? Does that characterize our church? Does it feel like you're really doing works that Jesus did or greater works than He did? What is Jesus talking about here? Let me just give you a few observations to kind of help us understand what He's saying. The first thing that we need to see just right from the text, this is for all believers. This is not just for the apostles, because Jesus says, this is for everyone who believes in me. That's every true believer, this is, this is true of you. So whatever he says here, whatever he means here, isn't just for some special, elite, uh, supernatural, extraordinary class of Christians, like those are the guys that, that this is true of, but then there's the rest of us, ordinary folks. No, this is for ordinary Christians like you and me. What Christ promises here. All believers will do the works Jesus did and more. Now we read that and we feel a certain tension, don't we? Because it doesn't seem like we're doing the works Jesus did and certainly not greater works than He did. Anybody ever turn water into wine? Any, any, anybody, uh, he, he, anybody know what everybody else around them is thinking? I know sometimes you feel like you do. You can read everybody's mind. And, and act accordingly. But Jesus, he, he knew what people were thinking. He healed the lame, a, a man who'd been crippled for 38 years. He fed thousands of people with a couple fish and, and some bread. He walked on water. He healed a man born blind. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. So, so does Jesus mean that every ordinary Christian will do these things? Or maybe, maybe not, okay, every, all the time, but at least one or, one or two of these big ones in our lives and if we don't do these kinds of things, these and greater things than these, then does that mean we're not truly believers? Well, certainly not. We know that's not true. All right, just hold on to that. So, but the first thing I want you to see, don't miss this. This is for all believers, all who believe. Second, believe, this is just an observation to help us get at meaning here. Believe and works are connected throughout this context. We saw it back in verse 11. We looked at there last week. Just look back with your eyes there. Is that, that Jesus' works are designed to help people believe. That's the point of them. Verse 11, believe on account of the works. Verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So whatever works Jesus is talking about, they're designed to point people to Jesus so that they'll trust in him. So, second observation. Third, let's just say what Jesus does not mean here. He doesn't mean that believers will simply do more works. In the sense that the church will do more than Jesus did because the church will be here for thousands of years and Jesus had 30 years on earth, 30 30 plus years on earth. And so, of course, you're going to do more works. So it's not greater, it's it's just more. Well, I'm just going to quote D.A. Carson and he says that would be unbelievably trite for Jesus to say that. (laughs) 
That's redundant, of course. There's going to be more in quantity. Second, he doesn't mean that believers will do more spectacular works than Jesus. And this, again, we just have to understand that it's hard to imagine doing anything more amazing than the works that Jesus did, those miracles. And so this brings us to the fourth observation. And and notice what he says. We will do the works Jesus does and more, greater, not in spite of the fact that he's going to the Father, but because he's going to the Father. That's what the text says. So Jesus' departure is for our benefit. The very basis of the greater works is Jesus going to the Father. And how is that so? Well, his going to the Father means a few things. I know i got several lists running here, and I'm sorry. What does that mean? This is a short one. Because Jesus goes to the Father, that, that means that Jesus will have accomplished a great salvation. For us, stand on this side as believers to come, we look back at the great salvation that Christ has accomplished, and that's, that's part of what allows us to see these greater works. The greater works will be those done after and on the basis of Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation. Second, Jesus will have given us a great commission. He will send us out. And and even in John, the way he states this, is the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You see that? That comparison? As God the Father sends God the Son into the world, Jesus says, so I'm going to send you out. You don't think that's, that's different in changing things? And then third, Jesus will have sent us a great helper. A great helper, the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, this will be next week. And he's really going to elaborate on this point. And this is really the key, I think, in the context of what makes the difference. But Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So that's that's changing. So because Jesus is going to the Father, not not uh, in spite of the fact, but because He's going to the Father by way of the cross and the empty tomb, He will send His disciples out and give them the Holy Spirit so that they can do greater works. That's what Christ is saying. And so, as you think about it, up to this point, salvation has only been about anticipation, but now it's going to be a consummation. He's going, Jesus is going to say, it is finished. And so we, we have an opportunity to proclaim that finished work of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's a greater work. And those, these greater works, they began through Peter's preaching at Pentecost when the Spirit came. And, 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 and just in that moment, there were 3,000 souls born again, probably more than Jesus saw converted during His entire earthly ministry. And then you look throughout Acts, the message of Christ crucified and risen, it just keeps spreading, and first to Jerusalem, and eventually to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, and eventually to us, and to my brother Aaron right here, shared his testimony this morning. This is part of those greater works that Jesus says. So I'm not, I don't want you to think like, well, man, that's kind of a downer. I want to do some crazy cool stuff. And so I'm not, it's not trying to dole the edge and, and because of, of unbelief in Christ saying, well, it can't, it, this is not, it doesn't mean that. It, you know, we just got to say it's just, do you realize what salvation is, brothers and sisters? It's bringing death from death to life. Spiritually dead people to life. J.C. Ryle says there's no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. 
And so as Jesus uses us to spread this message of Christ's death and resurrection, we are doing the works that He did and even greater works. And we have opportunities to do this all the time, don't we? To bear witness to Jesus Christ. Collectively, as a church, we'll, we'll give emphasis to this, this season and with Easter coming up. And so uh, the gospel outreach team of this church, they've been working on plans to really have a concentrated outreach into this community over Easter. And you're going to hear more about this this week. There should be an email coming out in the next day or so. So please watch for that and, and, and respond. But be praying and, pl- and planning for, for just a harvest of souls this, this resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to be canvassing these neighborhoods around here and handing out flyers and, 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 and having invites to, for you to pass out in your neighborhoods and where you live and where you work. We'll have a more concentrated effort in prayer and there will be all kinds of preparation for welcoming folks. And So see Eric if that's what your interest is and, and following up with people. But I just say be involved in these greater works. This is, this, is, this is the stuff. Look to God for a mighty work in our community. Expect great things from Him. And so, so how, how, does he, how does He do this? So, and that brings us to the sixth, sixth comfort that Christ gives. It's, troubled hearts are comforted by the promise of Christ. As we aim to carry on Jesus' works in this world, we have this wonderful promise given by Christ. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. And and just take that last little statement of Jesus. That that means that the contrast back in verse 12 is not really between Jesus' works and our works. Like, he's done, he's finished, now it's our turn. We we carry on the torch. No, the, the, the contrast is what Jesus did during his earthly ministry and what he continues to do now through us. So he says, I will do it. It's my doing. It's not yours. I'm continuing on. The, the mission that we're on is not the mission that Jesus kind of handed us. Take it. You can have it. See how far you get. No. We are joining Christ on mission as we open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. As we seek to know our neighbors and as we seek to, 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 to be a witness for Christ where we live and around the world. We're joining Him with what He is doing. It's he's, he's doing it. So He says, I will, I will do it. But the means that Jesus uses to accomplish His works through us is prayer. Is ask. Ask. And we're going to deal with this. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment. So I'm going to be brief here. We'll deal with this at length in the next chapter. Two chapters of John really. In John 15 and John 16 we see basically the very same wording of this promise that Jesus gives. So it's important. So I'm not trying to gloss over that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying... We, we'll come back to this. But you see, the. Uh, let me just say a couple of things. The scope of this promise. Whatever you ask. Now again, he's not saying just, you know, ask for the mansion and bucket and the beamer and, and just tack on in Jesus' name and, and he's guaranteed to give you that. That's, I know there's a lot of, of false teachers out there that advocate that kind of, kind of talk. That's not what we're talking about. But, but we, we, we're, we're asking God to extend his gospel, to glorify his name uh, through, through, throughout the world. And, 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 and he says, ask. Doesn't mean he's always going to answer the way we expect, but, he, but he'll ask and he will, he will answer. And he says, ask again in my name. It's for my fame, Jesus says, not yours. 
It's my worth. It's my infinite payment on the cross. It's according to my sovereign wisdom. This is, this is the idea of asking in my name. The aim of the promise is the Father's glory in the Son. And the results, I will do it. And he repeats that in verse 13 and 14. He's going to repeat it other times in this section of John. And so, don't try to dodge it. Don't try to dull the edges of that statement. This, this shows Christ did. He has the power to do whatever we ask of Him. In His name. I have a pastor up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at Epiphany Fellowship, Eric Mason. Some of you, some of you all know him. Hey, I, he posted this on Facebook just yesterday and I thought it fit well here. He, he says, and this is a good, good for us to hear, it's sad that the abuses of the prosperity gospel have caused us to make expecting great things from God unsound. You see what he's saying? It, yes, there are horrendous problems with the health and wealth preachers and, and the way that they abuse these passages like this. But we can, can so react against that that we think to expect anything great from God, anything in the stat, other than the status quo, is, is un, unsound. And I think we need to be challenged by the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, He wants us to get this. Just ask anything. I'll, I'll do it. Now again, we, we, we feel this tension because we, we, we've prayed prayers. We've, we've asked God to further His cause for His own glory and, and many things that... And, he, and yet he hasn't done it. You and I have prayed for the salvation of loved ones who've died in unbelief. You, we've prayed for reconciliation and healing in Christian marriages that ended in divorce. We've prayed for prodigal children who begging the Lord to, to bring them back to Christ and to restore relationship with their mom and dad. And he hasn't done it. Missionaries have prayed have prayed and labored for the gospel to take root among unreached peoples. But after decades of work and prayer, there's hardly any visible fruit. And the list goes on. And that may be the kind of turbulence you're in right now. So how do we reconcile the seemingly blanket promise that Jesus gives with, with, with this kind of tension? Now, I can't resolve all that completely for you today. Let me just give you three statements and then we'll come to the table. First, some of the tension we feel comes from the fact that, that while we can know God's will of desire, we can't know His will of decree. See what I'm, that distinction. God desires that all people be saved, but God has not decreed the salvation of all. God desires that we glorify Him by living holy lives, but He, he, he permits sin and He will be glorified even in His judgment of sinners who do not repent. And so we have to... Deal with that tension. Second, Jesus' promise to do whatever we ask does not undermine the many scriptures that exhort us to wait on the Lord. And so Jesus doesn't say when He'll do it. God may be glorified as we faithfully wait on Him for years um, for answer to, to our prayers. Third, and finally, God often accomplishes His purposes in ways that seem backwards to us. We pray for peace and stability in nations so that the gospel will have freedom to, to, to run and God sends persecution and, 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 and sends the embers of the gospel out and, and thousands upon thousands come to faith in Christ. We see it in China. We, we pray for strength and God makes us weak so that we'll rely upon His strength. Right, so this is a reality. 
what I I want you to see, and let's come back. These are words, powerful words of comfort for troubled followers of Jesus. And they're for you today. But the question is, does this really work? In our pragmatic age, this is what we got to ask. Does it really work, though? Is this kind of theoretical? It's religious kind of fiction. Is, this, is, is Christ really our comfort in times of trouble, in the really hard stuff of life? Okay, sure, this is good for those kind of little small little, little fires, that, but not the big raging forest fire of sorrows that I'm dealing with. But let me just say, it does. Case in point is these same frightened Jesus followers uh, huddled in this little upper room with Jesus right now whose hearts are troubled and they're just, just minds are spinning. Their whole world is turned upside down. They're going to be together in another upper room in just a few weeks with Jesus after his death and resurrection and they're going to go out from that room courageous and bold. They will be persecuted. They will be in prison. They will be beaten, separated from their families, criticized by false teachers. But their hearts will not be troubled. Because they continued trusting in God. They continued trusting in Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. And who has promised to do greater works through them as they called out to Him in prayer. And so I say to you, tragedy will come. Difficulties will surprise you and pounce upon you. It'll, uh, the, 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 the angry pit bull of suffering that you're, you try to sneak around, it's going to see you and it's going to get its eyes on you and attack. And, and when it comes, how, how will you respond? It's not a simplistic response, but it's a simple one. As Jesus says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Keep trusting in God. Keep trusting in me. In my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I have a mission for you. There's going to be a helper who's going to come. And, and I'm sending you out to do greater works than I've even done. And I will do anything you ask of me. That's comfort. Those aren't empty words. They're just trying to, try to keep the guy from crying too much so just so we can kind of move on. No, these are real, meaningful, substantial words of comfort that are rooted in the person of Christ. And that's ours today. Let's pray. Father, give comfort to troubled hearts today. Lord, as we come to the table, even God, after we sing, um, God, use, use this time of, of putting these truths back to you in, in song and meditating upon Christ and Christ alone and what he has accomplished for us. Uh, direct us, God, to tremendous comfort as we come and remember Jesus together. We pray in, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.